0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. And today we've got a special treat. Last week, I was at the New Zealand Economic Association meeting in Auckland. And we had a stellar keynote presentation from Professor Rima Vathianathan of Auckland University of Technology. And she was talking about some of the superb work she's doing in the United States using administrative data to help make sure that child outcomes are better. So when children interact with the equivalent of Oranga Tamariki in parts of the United States, or Child, Youth, and Family, as it used to be called here. All kinds of administrative data is created, and that kind of data can be used to help have a better sense of how to help kids as they come into the system. Rima is talking an awful lot about that, and ways that they are improving outcomes. They're just trying it out, see what works, and it seems to be doing a lot of good. So, welcome Rima.
1: Thank you, Eric. Lovely to be here.
0: So when did you start this work in the United States?
1: So 2016, I think, was the first time we deployed a predictive risk model, and that was in Allegheny County. We won a contract. They did our RFP around the world, and so we won that contract. And then subsequently, it was rolled out in a few counties in Colorado and California. So last... I guess, five, six years, we've been really finding more and more interest.
0: So what do you mean by predictive risk modeling?
1: All right. Thank you. That's always a tricky question to answer on a five-second podcast, but let me try. So it's basically the idea that we take administrative data from the child protection system. So I'll give you a context. So in the US, there's around 7 million calls to what's called a child abuse hotline. So anyone can call family, friends, therapists. When they call, the call screener has to decide, which is a local child protection office, has to decide whether they're going to go out on the call and investigate or not. Now, 50% of the time, they don't investigate. And I understand this is about similar in Oranga Tamariki. You can't investigate all the calls that come in. And so what we have is a built for agencies in the u.s is a tool that when the call comes in goes and looks up that child and the parents and other people associated with the call including the alleged perpetrator looks up their history in lots of the child protection system across the state or the county and it basically gives the call screener one piece of information the information is something like this this child has the kind of history that other children have had before and those children who've had similar history of removals of mum having been abused or not abused when she was young the alleged perpetrator having a pattern of allegations against him or her that pattern looks similar to the child in front of you and on average children with that same pattern end up either with very high chance of being removed in the next two years, being re-referred, being chronically involved, or very low chance of being chronically involved or re-referred. So that's sort of essentially it. It's sort of comparing the child or the referral in front of the worker with a kind of a cache of hundreds of thousands. Now, it doesn't quite do it that way, does it, with a statistical reduction of the cache? But essentially, that's what we're doing. That 500,000 previous referrals it's comparing it to, that comparison is called a training. And we usually have a trained model sitting in the back end of the system that gives you that piece of information. We always emphasize it. at the end of the day it's still the screener's decision think of this as just one piece of information with the narrative with the source of the information with what they personally know about the family and then they make that screening decision
0: and i suppose in the absence of this kind of a tool the person who's getting the call is running an intuitive predictive risk model in their own head right so the alternative to this is the screener with whatever they bring to the table, whatever small sample of experiences they've had or whatever background prejudices they might have had, making their own prediction about, well, is there going to be a bad outcome if I don't send anybody out or are things going to be fine? Now, how has the system worked to improve outcomes? So is the predictions coming out of this model really useful in reducing harm or not adding that much compared to the intuitions of the of the screeners who are already working?
1: Yeah, I mean, Eric, that's been one of our big drivers is we really are committed to independent evaluation of our work. So every time, most of the time we do this work, we also have sitting next to us sort of evaluators who go in and do either randomized control trials or some other evaluation method. So probably the best one done so far for our work is in a little county in Colorado. Two PhD students actually did it from Harvard and Princeton, and they did a randomized control trial, which is kind of considered in policy like a gold standard because the way randomized control trials work is that for a whole year, some families had, when they were called in, the workers had the tool. And for other families, the workers did if the same things that they always did, so it was business as usual. So for the families where the worker had the tool, it was business as usual, but they had this additional piece of information. And so what the the scholars were able to show is that when that piece of information was added to that screener, over following those families over more than a year, and looking at hospitalization records, they were able to find that it reduced injury hospitalization by a third. So what they find is that the addition of this score seemed to increase the salience of some of the things that the worker was reading, make them more detail orientated around the narrative because they know that history already been summarized. And so somehow they were able to pull from that narrative and the contextual information a lot more. It intuition and the intuition was right. Whereas the business as usual, they were growing and trying to find history and all of that stuff and summarize that at the same time as using the contextual information. So I think it's just, that's my takeaways. It speaks to the fact that we can provide technology to quickly get on top of structured history so that workers can use more of textual information better but yeah that was an amazing finding and the other thing that's super exciting about that result is it actually find the effect is bigger for black children so it reduced the racial disparities between black and white children both in screening decisions in how involved those children became and in their final injury hospitalization
0: i'm going to want to hear more about that because what i i'm during your talk and afterwards i tweeted and supported the Awesome work, and had people yelling at me saying, "Oh well, th- this is just going to be implementing biases, and it's going to make things worse." So you're telling me then that, and you had said at the ends at AE meetings that black children in particular were benefited from it. So previously the screeners were well, you'll explain it to our, to the audience then, or our audience here rather than the ones at ends at AE previously the screeners were kind of kind of broad brush intervening across black families and giving too much of a pass to white families or how did that work
1: yeah it's so interesting eric so my takeaway and this is from work done not just here but a few other researchers have done similar work and found had similar findings is i think when there isn't a st- structured information, people see race as risk because they don't see a lot more to counteract that impression. And so what we actually found, interestingly enough, is that when they didn't see the score, they were more likely to screen in, that is, investigate low-risk Black children Why is that? Because when they saw that family, they don't see much history. That's why that family has a low score, right? Because they actually haven't been that involved in the system. But they see they're black and they somehow see, think potentially that there is some chance that this family has had kind of hidden abuse of some description. And so they actually go out on them. And we found the same effect even with Hispanic families in a more Hispanic concentrated area we worked in. So it's really fascinating how race plays subconsciously into how people are making assessments of risk and then how a tool like this can sort of counteract that that kind of, because it's exactly what you were saying, Eric. I mean, we don't know the algorithm in people's heads, but we kind of think that the algorithm does weight race somehow, right?
0: Yeah, so it's neat that okay, interventions then shifted from low-risk black families to high-risk black families. What's your intuition on why they were under investigating the actual high-risk black families in that case? Like, it doesn't—it's not consistent with a lot yeah. of sort of intuitive models that I might have had in my head.
1: Yeah, actually, to be honest, Eric, the intervention went from and this is clearer in another paper we see, interventions essentially went from low-risk Black families to high-risk white families. So there was some evidence that we were under-protecting high-risk white families.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. So I, I might have misunderstood a little bit from the yes, talk previously. Yes. I thought that there was a bit of perhaps... Underreporting in the highest risk among black families, and then massive over investigating among the lower risk black families, as well as, of course, the, the white families being ignored in the system.
1: That's so my takeaway is it really emphasized how risk in white families and de-emphasize risk in black families so i think and and in fact it speaks to some narratives that i've heard when i first started with this work with actually a real someone i really respect a senior african-american psychologist working in this area and he said one of the concerns he's always had is that we're under providing for white families that we we don't see as much of the risks in white families as as we do in black families and therefore we are not giving them the services they need and so on because we think that there's nothing there but there are, for some families do need lots of support and we need to get it to them
0: wow and a third drop in hospitalizations is huge
1: it is very significant yes
0: so Going back to when you started this with Allegheny, kind of fun. My wife's from Pittsburgh, so it's in the general oh, neighborhood. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. What do you think led Allegheny to want to have that kind of data-driven approach to figure out how they could do better and then check to see that it worked?
1: You know, Allegheny is a unicorn because it's near CMU, Carnegie Mellon yep. University. It also has, I believe, the highest foundation funding per head of population, because as you know, you know, Carnegie's were there, the Mellons were there. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of old foundations that are very supportive of county projects, so Allegheny has one of the best integrated data warehouses anywhere in the world. I've had folks from Denmark do a study tour. I led a study tour of Danish people to Allegheny County, and they've never seen anything like it.
0: Oh, that's great. So they did a worldwide RFP looking for people to work on this. You applied, you came in, and that was then the first bit of work in that area in Allegheny. Now, Oftentimes, bureaus will see this kind of thing as a threat, that it'll show up existing practice as having been deficient, it will perhaps cause embarrassment for prior managers or people who had set prior policy. How did Allegheny get around that? That seems more of a cultural issue than just having foundations and money behind them, right? Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Eric. I mean, Allegheny is incredibly open about sharing data, about its approach. It's go ahead. Mark Churner was the director there for 20 years. He had a very open attitude and he's been replaced by Aaron Dalton, who's also a highly respected director and leader, really a national leader in sort of city kind of county work. I think also... Uh, I mean, I have to say our approach is always when we work with agencies, we are very clear with them. We're trying to make things better for you. We're not evaluators. We don't come in and try to diss your practice or even try to look at your practice. We're trying to improve things. And so we're very conscious of that because I think it's a very hard environment in which people are innovating in the public sector. You know, it's people who work in the private sector have no idea how hard it is to run an innovation program in the public sector. It makes me laugh when private sector people kind of say, oh, if I were running the public sector, I could do it so well. They have no idea. I say to private sector people, I say, imagine trying to innovate when half your your shares are shorted. Do you know what I mean? Like there's all these people who gain from your share price going down. I remember Elon Musk like complaining when Tesla's shares were being shorted, going, it's so hard to run Tesla when, you know, there are all these people out there who shorted on my shares. And I'm like, well, welcome to the public sector, because half the people out there are trying to pull down your agency, trying to show you up and try imagining how what innovation would look like in that environment. That is what innovation in the private public sector looks like in my world in my books
0: so as that played out in allegheny were there any problems like i can imagine the community who tends to be involved with child youth and family or child protection services being a little bit nervous at the start how were they brought on side how was their support maintained how did they see things as it developed
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very contentious area, child protection, and it has become increasingly contentious. So there's a sort of a divide between the people who do the work and realize just how hard the work is and that. The child protection system is trying to do its best in the face of really bad technology. I have to tell you the systems that they're working with are legacy technology systems. You know, all of them are really pretty bad. Allegheny is pretty good in upgrading those and having quite good systems, but they're still not, you know, cutting edge systems. And so we're asking child protection to do that work. And so these sorts of tools are actually embraced often by child protection leadership around the country, not just Allegheny. The problem for all of these folks are the people who sort of sit outside child protection are not directors of human services, you know, who are not the people doing the work, but can also have a very influential voice on how these folks do their work. And so one of the challenges for Allegheny was To kind of mediate between those two voices, Allegheny has had a very long history of bringing those voices into the tent, of having constant feedback because Pittsburgh is a kind of nice middle sized city. It's like a little, the county and the city are very close together. So people can bring those voices in regularly. And so I always say to people, if you don't have good community engagement and feedback, this is not the project to start that (laughs) with, right? But if you're truly committed to your community, then you should already have infrastructure on getting community feedback and listening to your community. So because Allegheny already had that, that this project was just one more project that they were trying to get community feedback on. So I went and spoke to the community, to folks who've had lived experience, who've had children removed, to a room full of families and foster parents, explained to them almost two years before the tool came in what the theory was, what the the business case was, you know, what was the argument for this? What have we been trying to do without this kind of technology for 20 years? How was that going? And why would this help? And how would we make sure that we knew it was helping and not harming? So those were the kind of conversations we had very early and in almost every jurisdiction that we work in, we really support and encourage those community conversations and conversations with people with lived experiences. And those people are often much more supportive than the again, that kind of group of people who stand outside and want to reverse the course of technological adva- advancement across the whole system. But
0: so, do you have the sense now that because of its successes, the system is now embedded and enjoys support, or is it always going to be that tension?
1: I think you know. I don't see. I think for the next decade, there's be there's there's going to be issues with this general kind of umbrella of AI. Just to be clear, predictive risk modeling is not AI. It's a sort of a statistical approach, which has been around for 50 years. But there's this kind of a, you know, glamorization, fetishization of anything in the media at the moment that sort of looks like could be AI for whatever, you know, I have no idea what AI is. I don't even think ChatGPT is AI. I mean, I think that this is all just, you know, mechanical parrots. But in anywho, you know, whatever this is, it's got fetishized. And so naturally, you have a lot of contestation of this technology. And I don't think that contestation is going to be reduced. And that contestation is the context in which our work is being carried out.
0: Well, it seems important, right? The As I've thought about this stuff before looking at your kind of work, it, any child protection service just seems to be in a terrible spot. They've, they're either going to be t- intervening in too many families and causing massive harm that way, or intervening with too few families and causing massive harm that way, and they're damned no matter what they do, right? There's some kind of efficiency frontier, and they will always be balancing harms. What you found is a technique for shifting the production possibility frontier entirely so that they can have fewer of both harms. So instead exactly. of it being a trade off between intervening too much versus too little, it is intervening more accurately all of the time. And then you're back onto a new frontier where you're still facing that trade off, yes. but
1: exactly. with a lot
0: less harm
1: indeed 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 and that's exactly i think what our findings are but i have to be clear you know i don't think rct findings in the current policy debate has a lot of weight i think we could have incredibly strong randomized control trials published in the top journals and i still think the federal or state or local government would turn on a dime and stop a very promising program.
0: Yeah, that can happen. It's a little frustrating. We'll probably get into more more of that in our next chat. Just just on the difficulties in that, I guess there's a bit of a precursor to it. I, I love that in America, you could just find the one unicorn county that was keen on doing something interesting. And you didn't have to convince a billion people, who each of whom can say no to something and stop it. You just found the one place that is willing to go for it, and then you can demonstrate that it works. Right? It's a little different than here. Now, I guess just as a, a bit of a precursor for for the next chat, you'd started this work in New Zealand before you ever went to the U.S., right?
1: <laughs> exactly. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and and you know because the rates in New Zealand are terrible of abuse and neglect, and we've written papers about this cumulative removal rates for Maori are huge. It's cumulative investigation and substantiation rates for the population as a whole is pretty high. So New Zealand is not about learning from the U.S., if you see what I mean.
0: And you talked about Allegheny having this world-leading administrative database infrastructure. So that's all of these back-end databases where, like, the police records and the prison records and the other Child Protection Service records and maybe the health system records, maybe the education system records, they all get mixed up together so well not mixed up together linked in together so that the child protection officer can get a comprehensive view across those along with the researchers to, to put in that model that sounds an awful lot like new zealand's integrated data infrastructure the statistics new zealand put in and when that was put in that was world-leading because nobody else really had that so you'd started working on it here and what happened
1: well, you know, I think people didn't quite understand the idea. There's two types of integration. There's integration for research and integration for use. Now, in New Zealand, what they'd been pursuing was integration for research, which is the integrated data infrastructure. That has zero impact for frontline workers because it still doesn't mean that if a child comes into my office As a child protection worker, I can go find out whether the child has truancy history or has any behavioral health diagnoses. I cannot still do that. So the IDI is de-identified and is designed for research. So in lots of European countries like Denmark, you have amazing integrated data for researchers. They also do not have frontline integrated data for workers to use. So these two parts of data integration was poorly understood, I think, even in New Zealand with the social investment unit. No one quite understood that the social license, the pathways, everything for these are completely different. You can have fantastic research integrated data and zero integration for frontline. You can have fantastic frontline integration and yet not have integrated data for researchers. It's some completely different. So we have never had that conversation in New Zealand about what we want to allow our child welfare workers to see in terms of other system involvement. And so I don't think we'll ever get to the point of Allegheny. But to be honest, we don't need it. Like in LA and Colorado, the data we use is just what the child welfare worker can see. We've always had a principle that we only use in the predictive risk model, data that is seen by the person. So essentially we don't feed any model with any data that the person who's making the decision and being shown the score can't themselves see, because otherwise they won't know how to contextualize it.
0: But you were doing some of this predictive modeling in New Zealand, right? So you'd started looking at this here, and this was under the prior, I think this was prior to 2014, right?
1: That's right. So it was under, before even Anne Tolly, it was Paula Bennett's white paper for Oranga Tamariki, Part of that work was to, they commissioned MSD at the time, who was, it was before Ranga Tamariki was on MSD, commissioned myself and Emily Putnam-Hornstein, who is my collaborator in the US, to see if this was possible in New Zealand. And because I've been doing similar work in hospitals in New Zealand, I got this contract and we showed them that, yes, at the point that children come in to, say, get benefits, we can predict whether they'll be substantiated within the next few years.
0: Cool. And what happened when you continued that work?
1: So it was, oh my gosh, it was a story. What happened is that we provided them with a report and then what happened is they brought it in-house. So we got sort of left out of whatever they were doing. And I still remember to this day, I was calling them okay, hey, how's that going? Do you want any support? Because, you know, moving from a theoretical model to actual deployment is very challenging. You know, none of what we've done helps you figure out how to actually build and deploy this. And of course, I've built and deployed hospital prediction tools, so happy to help you. But I got a dead silence and a dead no. So in the end, the next thing I knew, there's a front page Herald article saying that Anne Tolley had received a paper from MSD. At that time, the ministers had changed to Anne Tolley asking for some permission to run this model. Apparently, they'd rebuilt a model, run a model in the background and see if the children that were predicted to be at high risk ended up being substantiated as predicted by the predictive risk model. And what Tolly had written in the margins and was exposed in the front page of the Herald is children are not lab rats. That has been the legacy of this work in New Zealand. Now, I went on at the time publicly and complete, you know, said, look, I never suggested that this is how you do it. This is not how you would do it. You would never run a model in the background, sort of checking if children are being abused in order to see if this model is predictive. It's, you can check prediction very well. <laughs> Historically, it's completely ridiculous. But unfortunately, by then the horse had bolted. And so that was, of a dead drop
0: so when america tried the similar system they saw a one-third drop in hospitalizations among kids for child abuse and here it was killed because anne tolly thought it was experimenting on kids because msd botched the implementation of it
1: yeah i would say so i mean i think at the time no one knew it was going to reduce hospitalization by a third so at the time i guess They didn't know what the benefits were, so. but yes, you're right, that's what happened.
0: Well, that's pretty damning of our civil service and the the political environment that we work in. It just seems hard to make things better. I think we're going to have to leave this one here, but we'll pick this up in the next chat on how to embed this kind of data-driven approach into policy a little bit more rigorously. Thank you so much, Rima. This has been fascinating and just depressing because... We had the system here, it was ready to go, and then politics killed it and you had to move over to the US to to, to run it there.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Eric.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Dima. Thank you, listeners. Tune in next time.